This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. Hello and welcome to The Thin Place, the Film Geek Radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. This is episode number 43 for January 2014. Happy New Year, everyone. And your hosts for this episode are Ken Morfield, that's me, and Todd Truffin, that's me. Our topic for this episode is 12 Years a Slave. The Oscar frontrunner by director Steve McQueen. This is not a spoiler-free discussion, so if you have not yet seen 12 Years a Slave and do not wish to know how the film ends or various plot points before you see the movie, this might be a good time to check out one of the other great podcasts on Film Geek Radio. So, Todd, normally at this point we do some summary There's not a lot of summary to be had in 12 Years a Slave. The title gives you the basic plot of the movie. I wanted to start with the question we discussed a little bit in pre-production notes, which is the film tells us something about Christians or people who profess to be Christians of a historical time period. Does it say anything about God or did it say anything about God? to you other than God sometimes has followers who are a little bit hard to bear. Yeah, I think that's in some ways a central question, I think for at least a spiritually minded person responding to this film, especially a Christian person. Yes, I mean it's clear that the film shows a lot of the arguments that were being made during the time of American slavery made by the slave owners to justify themselves. And the way the film does that, I think, to me at least, it it seemed clear that the filmmakers were presenting this in such a way as to say this was an absurd use of scripture in in these various things. I agree. Um, And I think that's important to note. The film didn't seem to me to be an indictment of all Christianity, but of these people. Um, I think that's an important Well, I, or I might even say an indictment of the arguments as such. Yeah. I don't even know that all the people are indicted. Certainly, Michael Fassbender's Master Apps is portrayed as being a horrid person, not just right. a horrid Christian. But uh, Benedict Cumberdatch's character, who's a little bit more kind to the slaves and quoting the scriptures is portrayed less less evil than weak. Um, That's what I don't know. I don't know that it indicts his Christianity so much. I think it's certainly it's not noble or something like that, but yeah. And, and, and master Ford is, is generally just, I think portrayed as a weak person. Mm -hmm. Um, the one thing I, I, you know, in thinking about this that I also keep coming back to is there's the scene where Patsy is asking Solomon to kill her. And 
we get some more God talk there. And then mm-hmm. she makes the argument that you know God is merciful and he will forgive a merciful act. Uh, Solomon is saying, I'm not going to kill you. That's, that's horrible. How could you, how could you damn me? Right. I would go to hell because murder is wrong. Murder is wrong. And her argument is that, well, God is merciful and will forgive a merciful act. And certainly killing her, you could see that as a merciful act. And, I, and that was an interesting point because, you know, here, you know, in a sense, and I think one of the things the film does in some interesting places is show us some parallels. You know, we've got the slave owners are using scripture to defend their actions. Um, Patsy's not using scripture, but she's talking about God in a way to really defend what she wants. And I, I thought that was an interesting beat in the film in terms of this thinking about what what does this film say about God or through its God talk. And, and I don't know what, yet what, what to make of that scene exactly, but it seemed to be important in terms of a almost a parallel. Well, it seems important to me in revealing something about Solomon Northrup's Solomon Northrup being the main character, his religious or moral sensibilities, such as it were. We don't get a whole lot of those before he is kidnapped into a slave. And I think while he is a slave, we get a a fairly familiar theme in African-American literature of the conflicted relationship between the slave and Christianity. Because on the one hand, religion, Christianity is the source of comfort and hope for another life or a blessing or a reward. On the other hand, Christianity is the religion of the slaveholder and is abused in ways that are are readily apparent to them. But Solomon has not always been a slave. And so I see a, a... distancing in him towards all aspects of white culture, including Christianity, as he becomes a slave. And yet, I think evident in that scene with Patsy is that if once a religious belief or conviction gets a hold of you, you can't simply choose to not believe it anymore. He doesn't seem to want to participate in a lot of the Negro spirituals, the saying of a word over the grave when they bury another slave who has been killed. Um, He doesn't want to admit to believing that, but when really pushed to the point, he can't make himself act in contradiction. He can't make himself not believe or act differently from, from what he really does deep down believe. And what's important in that scene is that he doesn't just say it's wrong. He says he will be damned. Right. Um, you know, so it, it's, a, it's a very specifically a theological reason why he doesn't, it isn't going to do this, this thing. It's, it's not just, oh, I think it's wrong or something. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that goes well, to your point. Well, and I think in, in that, I think Solomon's religious 
faith is a little bit more complicated than we're used to seeing in a lot of liberation theology or, or whatnot, where I think we're a little bit more comfortable with Patsy's argument that, oh, if we're the victim, God will forgive us. And Solomon seems to hold on to a harder path that says there, there's no doubt that we're a victim. You know, there's no doubt that, you know, that, uh, this is, this is wrong. I, I'm not disagreeing with you that it would be a mercy to kill you. Um, but I don't, I cannot excuse myself of the moral obligations that God has put on me as a human being, even though I find myself in this position where no one else seems to have them or be living up to their own moral obligations, or I won't use my victimization as justification to act in a way contrary to that. I think the other place that we really see Solomon's conflicted nature or conflicted relationship with Christianity is uh, when they are they're, they're singing Roll Jordan Roll and at first he is not participating at all and he gradually joins in. It's a wonderful scene yes. for, I cannot pronounce his name, Chiwetel Ejiofor um, just a mix of anger and resignation but also you know, deep longing, and there is a sense in which when he finally gives in and releases himself to take some solace from the the comfort that there's a there's a great participation and a calling out to God. And it's interesting, I hadn't noticed on the first viewing, that the very next scene is the first scene with Brad Pitt as Mr. Bass, who will be the person who eventually delivers his letter that lends to his release. And so he doesn't, Solomon doesn't realize it, but I think the film makes a, a subtle connection between his no longer holding God at arm's length and crying out to God and his eventual deliverance. Yeah. That, of course, is somewhat problematic because then you're like any sort of explanation of God in such a movie that postulates God's existence and God's agency has to ask the question of saying, okay, well, why would God make him wait 12 years or make him participate in this Negro spiritual before he would answer the prayers or those of, of any other person? But, um, well, and, and we do s still after the Pearl George Pearl scene, which, which is a transformative moment in, in the film, he still has some dark roads to go down. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, it's after that scene where he is forced to whip Patsy. Right. Um, it's after that scene that he, if we can perhaps get into it or not, of uh, the, the role of music in this film. But after he has that expressive moment, it's also after that that he breaks his fiddle. Right. And I think, you know, there's something perhaps interesting there of he's destroying the Western white man's music instrument. And you know, after releasing himself in the Negro spiritual, um, yeah, there might be something there, but I think you're onto something. I think that the connection, because it is very important to say the next scene after Roll, Jordan Roll 
is the first appearance of Brad Pitt, but yeah. that's the beginning of the end. It's not the end, right? The deliverance isn't immediate. And, and he still has to do some other things. I, I think the reason why that's a turning point as I, as I think about it is that one of the important elements of the spiritual, why the spiritual has to come first in the embracing of God is because in order for Mr. Bass or Master Bass to be able to save him, Solomon first needs to be able to trust him. Yes. And Solomon has already gone to one slick-talking, idealistic white man talking about what it's wrong and been betrayed by them. And so everything in Solomon's training as a slave has been the way to survive is to not trust anyone, not take any risks. And he's only then, I think he would only be capable of taking risks and only be capable of reaching out to Mr. Bass and asking him to deliver the letter after he has allowed himself to trust God again. Mm-hmm. Because it, it's clear that he's lost, I don't want to say faith in God, but trust in God. And, and I mean, my God wouldn't right. uh, to say God has abandoned me, God is not there, or God does not care. God is not trustworthy, and in a way of sort of saying, like, I can't, I can be angry at God, but not forever. I can't make myself believe other than what I can't believe. Uh, and I think the trusting, the renewal of trust in God in the spiritual is the seed out of which the eventual trust of Bass um, is able to, to bear the fruit. Um, and I think in, in some ways, then, the breaking of the fiddle is, I mean, the fiddle is one of the things where um, I try to take comfort in or tries to make my life bearable. But he says earlier in the film, I don't want to survive. I want to live. Right. And so I, I'm no longer going to put my energy into making this bearable. You know, I need to get out because if I can't get out, he's, he's in much the same place as Patsy. If I can't get out, then I'm not really living. So we poking a little bit around Mr. Bass. And, you know, certainly we have the God-talking slave owners who defend slavery. Perhaps one of the questions is, you know, Mr. Bass certainly is against slavery. He has a couple of conversations with Epps. They discuss this, and you know, one of the, the other questions that we were dealing with in pre-production was, you know, how much is Bass's argument about God, and what, and or is it just kind of that mushy? I don't like slavery, or is it something rooted in a in a theological belief? Well, Brad Pitt, who plays Bass, is in. A beard that makes him look Anabaptist, either yeah. Amish or Mennonite or something. Certainly, historically, there have been denominations that were anti-slavery in that way, and so it's easy. And he does eventually deliver get a letter uh, or write a letter uh, for Solomon Northrop that that results in his release. Uh, so he acts in a very moral way. 
there there's one reference to God in the encounter or debate between Mr. Bass and um, Master Apps. Uh, this is a scene in which Master Apps offers him water because it's hot and the conditions are not good for working and eventually gets Mr. Bass to admit that part of the reason he laughed or found it amusing is because he doesn't really care about his, care about his slaves. Uh, and this leads to a nice conversation or debate about property in, in which Mr. Bass says that the law says that he owns the slaves, but the law is wrong. Uh, laws can change. Universal truths do not. And at that point, Master F says, are you comparing me to an a slave or black person, and Mr. Bass says, I'm only asking in the eyes of God. And uh, in the eyes of God, there is no difference. There is no difference. Which, I guess, for those people who are looking for confirmation to say, see, he is motivated by religious faith to be against slavery, I think that... The film, I ultimately come down to the, the film probably suggests that his motivation comes from religion, but that's not the foundation of his argument, or that's not the foundation of his... And he uses some other religious language. I mean, right. he, he, he looks around and says, there is no righteousness here. He makes a couple different references to the final judgment. So, I mean, there is a, again, it, it's, it's kind of oblique. It's not a straight on, the Bible says X, Y, and Z, and therefore I believe X. It, mm-hmm. it, it's much more of a reasoned argument couched in some religious language. Well, so let me ask a question. I think I know the answer to you, but let's see if we're on the same page. Which is, does it matter? I mean, either from within the context of the film or for us as Christian viewers of the film, why does it matter whether or not Mr. Bass is... Yeah, I think the only reason it might matter is that since the film has gone to such lengths previous in the previous scenes to show scripture being used specifically to defend slavery, that, I don't know if it's necessary, but... I think we would feel more comfortable. Yeah. If there was a, even if it's, you know, you're not going to get even balance, but if there was just one scene where a person was using scripture to attack slavery, you know, I think that would make us more comfortable. Um, us being who? The white Christian right. audience. Okay, so, yeah, I'm agreeing with you. On that. There is in my mind, a kind of person who is going to criticize this film and maybe already has. I don't read a lot of reviews, so if you have criticized the film on this basis, and I'm not talking about you personally, although I guess I am talking about you personally, because <laughs> I'm talking about you and as a group of people who are going to say something like, I feel like as a Christian, I've heard this argument, Oh, well, it portrays all Christians as being evil. And I know some Christians abuse Christians, but not all Christians are, are, are evil. And I think Steve McQueen, uh, the scriptwriter, John Ridley, I, I think 
are intelligent enough to, to realize that that level of hypocrisy was probably more common at the time period in Indian culture than was a more nuanced understanding of scripture. And so we're going to trust the audience enough to say, we're not making a comment about all Christians in all situations everywhere, but this was the reality. Maybe even this was the norm in some places that were experienced at some time. And we're not going to go out of our way or bend out of our way the narrative by overstating Bass's God talk so that you will feel better. Because in some ways, this is not a film about making you feel better. It's a film about making you feel fully what you ought to feel, which is you ought to be horrified, you know? Uh, because really the fact that not everyone abused scripture or religion doesn't relegate the horror that some people did and that we ought to be horrified by that and that ought to be shocking or distasteful. Uh, but there is something particularly to the modern white evangelical middle-class Christian sensibility that feels attacked by that. Like, you know, we're not just saying something shameful in the past, but I feel shame. I feel whatever. And so rather than, you know, feeling shame at my brothers or sisters or other Christians in the past, I, I end up getting resentful towards the artist or the art artifacts that are exposing something shameful or make, you know, are dredging up those feelings in me that I don't want to feel. I think another part of this is that you talk about, you know, the filmmaker's skill and, and trusting the audience. Um, I think the film itself does some things that at least that helped me trust it or trust them. Okay. Um, and, and some of that are, are drawing some of those nuances. We've already mentioned uh, Master Ford and he was a weak person. Um, he, he read the scriptures, but he didn't seem to be twisting them in the same way as Epps did. He, he, he wasn't making the sermon of why this means you should obey me. He just read. Um, but also, I think it was interesting in the opening scenes up in New York, um, it would have been very easy to portray the North as this sort of paradise of freedom. Uh, and, you know, certainly... We see a lot of interactions between Solomon and other white folks that are very positive and good. Uh, but there, are, there is also that little scene in the shop where a, another uh, black man walks in and it turns out he is a slave. Um, there were slaves in the north. Um, when his owner comes in, his response to seeing Solomon there purchasing whatever he was purchasing um, is not positive. It doesn't say anything, but it's, it's a very nuanced scene in terms of, yes, there are free black men in New York, but there are also slaves. It is not a paradisal sort of thing. And that sort of nuanced thing, at least for me, said there's some credibility here. You know, these are filmmakers who understand it's not all one way and not all the other. Um, there is a mix. 
and that helped me later in the film. Yeah. Uh, to trust the filmmaker. I, I think along racial lines and the portrayal of different races being portrayed, it, it was important to me that while there was a, not just the representation of of the whites that there were various degrees of complicit complicity or um, antagonism towards slavery. Uh, so too, the blacks within slavery were not idealized, and and by idealized, I mean I mean morally idealized right. in terms of uh, there's much contention on the boat that's taking them down to Louisiana where. You know, the one guy says we need to fight. The other guy says we need to put our head down and survive. Um, you know, there there's some questions or disagreements about, you know, what to do there. Um, you know, Patsy wants to kill herself. Uh, there's an important scene in which Solomon goes to pick up Patsy at a neighboring plantation, and there's a brief scene with Alfred Woodard playing a slave mistress who drinks tea and says, you know, other people serve me and and where I once served, other people serve me. And if I've got to sleep with the master to to do it and do whatever, you know, then that's what I'm going to do. And I think most importantly, there's two scenes, one at the beginning and one towards the beginning, one towards the end, where someone gets out of slavery, you know, a white person shows up and the quickness with which the person, the, the release slave, turns their back on the other slaves, uh, not because they no longer care, but because they no longer can do anything. I think, you know, in a, a less intelligent or nuanced film, there would be some, there'd be some transferring of that survivor's guilt to the white person. And, Oh, can't you take this person? He's going into slavery. You know, Patsy is this, the Django Unchained. We need to buy her. We need to get the other person out. And I think there's a, there's a reality, a hard reality that the slaves were like, okay, when that door is open, you grab that life raft and you get out. And if that means you have to let go of whoever is hanging on, um, that's the cost of survival. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very hard reality. Yeah, and, and I don't think there's anything morally wrong with doing that. No, you know, so I'm not saying that they're portrayed as being morally suspect or reprehensible for doing that. That's just a survival mechanism. But I'm saying it's not idealized in a way that right. sometimes in the past we might look at, you know, prisoner of war films or prisoner films and sort of saying that there's this solidarity or fraternity amongst, um, you know, the oppressed people groups right. that help them survive. And, and I think the reality is, is that, um, in those kinds of conditions, you survive whatever way that you can. And if that means banding together, you do so if that's advantageous to your survival. But if that means cutting loose of everyone else, there's an understanding of every man for himself. Yeah. And that's, you know, it is one of the things that makes this a, you know, a great film as opposed to, a normal mediocre film it, you know, is that nuance of each individual person is a person and it's, it, they're not just cardboard cutouts of you know, absolutist sort of 
tropes. Right. Um, and, yeah, and, and even in, you know, we've mentioned, you know, Mr. Bass. Um, can I, before, before we go on, can I put a cap on that? Oh, sure. Say, I, the other reason why I think it's a great film from a directorial standpoint is that it avoids doing a lot of that through exposition um, of dialogue of having a scene, uh, you know, where a person verbalizes, I can't leave Patsy behind. Right. She's been doing what? No, you have to leave Patsy behind. I think there is a brief hug of when Solomon is freed. There's a brief hug of Patsy. The white person is saying, Solomon, we, we need to go, you know, before this person gets guns or doing whatever. And then as Solomon is being driven away in the coach, McQueen switches to a uh, particular camera angle lens that lets go of deep focus. And Patsy is almost immediately part of the blurry background and is, is indistinct or, or is forgotten. And I think just that's conveyed visually through technique in two or three seconds. What a lesser film would say in a 30-second dialogue. Right, right. And, you know, part of this, you know, I was with Mr. Bass, is you know, he's an itinerant carpenter who is just going around doing various carpentry work on the plantation with, you know, where we meet him, he's building a gazebo for Mr. Epps. And... But we got we have that parallel of the other uh, white person who was hired to pick cotton that Solomon trusted the first time, and and, and there's an interesting you know again they're different people you mm-hmm. know the, the 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 cotton picker is you know certainly spouts all sorts of anti-slavery talk, but when it comes right down to it, and Solomon turns to him for help. There's the betrayal, and it, and it you really get the sense that this guy is just a talker. Um, well, you know that's funny. I I didn't. I mean, I I got drunk, this, he's a talker. He's well, he's a drunk. Uh, okay, but he has an important scene in which he says to Solomon, "I used to be an overseer." And it's impo- I became a drunk, and part of the reason why I became a drunk is because you can't make yourself do certain things without that go against your conscience without cauterizing your conscience. And I don't think he was just BSing or making that up that's, at, that's at that point. Um, I think what Solomon underestimates is Solomon just hears, oh, I had a conscience that I find that distasteful, but just because I find that distasteful doesn't mean that I can overcome the inclinations of habit. And I think he becomes a cap to Master Ford, the Benedict Cumberbatch character, who says, in essence, I know selling you to Master S is wrong, but the reality is is that I'm in debt, and it's not that I'm oblivious to or unfeeling towards the damage that I'm doing against my own consciousness that it's not there. It's just that I care more about drink or getting right. getting or, getting well, a job overseer job back or the whole you know, meeting my debt, you know, meeting yeah. my financial debt than I do about doing what my conscience is right. telling. Both yeah, both of them are in debt. I think that was an interesting connection. Yeah. Uh, whereas with Bass you get this interesting speech where when Solomon Asks him, he he he's, he feels weight. You know, he's like, I, I value. He's, you know, he says, I value my freedom more than anything. What you do scares me. 
because certainly being caught trying to help a slave was going to be bad. And yet he says, okay, I'll do it. Well, and, and, you know, that's, he's, he's, he's struggling with the same fears and the same pressures that Ford mm -hmm. and the cotton picker were. Um, he comes up with a different answer. I, you know, I guess the question then for us is what's, I think it's very, very important that Bass says at the end of his speech when he says that I'll do it. I'll yeah, deliver it's my letter. duty. He says it will not only be my pleasure, it will be my duty. Yeah. And, you know, and I think the in the cotton picker, Solomon appeals to his self-interest. I'll give you this money if you can do this. And he says, well, I just want you know want to be compensated because I'm I'm taking a risk, but. I'm motivated by self-interest. And if I'm motivated by self-interest, eventually it's always going to be my, my self-interest to side with the oppressor right. and not the oppressed. Whereas Bass talks about this will be my duty. And I think even though Bass doesn't use a lot of God talk, that's the, that's the tipping point because it's like, where does that duty come from? You know, it's, it's very hard for people to act against their own self-interest. For abstract, you know, based on abstraction, you know. Yeah. I mean, some people can do it. I have an abstract I, notion of brotherhood or duty to one another or something. But the reality is, is to take that much of a risk or to, you know, put yourself in jeopardy or to go against that much fear. You really have to, I think, feel a duty to a higher power that in some ways I hear more going against God and what God has told me my duty is than I fear going against the law of the land. And, and certainly, and yeah, I've done a minimal amount of, of research. Um, I, I was just curious as to certain things. And you can certainly go read the, the actual book, 12 Years a Slave, that was written by Solomon. Um, but one of the things he learned later is that Mr. Bass didn't just write a letter. He actually went himself up to New York to find someone to deliver this to. So it was, you know, again, we don't get this in the film, but history will tell us that Mr. Bass's duty went way beyond just simply writing a letter. Um, and yeah, I think there's there's something there. Um, I think what you're saying is it's driven by more than just, oh, I gave my word or something. Okay, so we've um, we've talked a good deal about um, religion and the representation of religion. Any general comments about the film? I mean, I, I valued the film very highly. It was it was number one on my top ten list for 2013. Um, I had seen it before. I think this was your first viewing. Yes. No, I mean it. It, it is. You know, it's funny when we. I was hesitant to see the film, um, not because I didn't think it was going to be any good, but because you know, it, it seemed to be one of those films that was going to be disturbing, um, hard, probably really well made, and that, you know, but do I want to put myself through that? Um, I feel like I was feeling like it the way I felt about Schindler's List, which was, yes, this is a, an important story, uh, 
Um, I saw it once and I don't ever need to revisit it. Um, and I what came out of watching this film feeling very different. Um, it's an excellent film. Um, I think it it's not just darkness though. Um, you know, it, it takes us through a very dark period in history. I, I think it was some of these touches, these transformative, revelatory moments that Solomon has, uh, that, and, and, and some of the other choices the director made to allow nature to speak. Um, there are several just scenes of of quietness in 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 nature, um, where we we see the characters either having a transformative moment or drawing strength or doing various things, where you know, it was, I don't want to say uplifting, but it was, I don't know, it, it felt more redemptive um, in the end. And, and by the time you get to the end and Solomon has his freedom, um, it, it had a, a much more satisfying like, emotional arc to it um, than something like a Schindler's List did for me. Yeah, I think that satisfaction for me came more from avoiding some seemingly unavoidable problems with the genre. I, I was struck a lot in a second viewing by the number of um, times in which the slaves were shot head-on, looking straight at the camera. Yes. Uh, not just three-quarter profiles. That creates a kind of intimacy and a lack of space between you and them. Um, but there are other places in which the camera follows behind them and you almost get a slave's point of view. And I, and I think it it neither totally adopts the slave's point of view nor the slave owner's point of view. Oftentimes, the, key, you know, the, the viewer associates with the camera and what the camera is doing and so a lot of times you are you are observing them but you're not observing them invisibly they're looking right at you right and there is a kind of discomfort that comes from you know that sort of there's not a lot of stuff in between you and the action that gives you an emotional buffer space, you know, where, where you're really feeling it. And, and I think that emotionally conveys the, some of the, the rawness of the slave experience more so than just the intensity of the beatings, which are there or even the graphic money shots and, and how they're portrayed. And yet it's, it can also be amazingly tender at times. Mm-hmm. Uh, the scene at the end where Solomon reunites with his family and it's not overplayed. It's not very long. There's not a lot said, but when they huddle around him physically, uh, all of a sudden there is something in between him and the camera and you feel that, that kind of woundedness in him that's being, being cocooned or sheltered. Um, and some of the shots of, of, Nature are just incredible, so that you have that that real juxtaposition, jarring juxtaposition, which is appropriate in a, in a film like this of incredible beauty and incredible ugliness, which is the epitome of the human condition. Right. Yeah, I, I was struck by that that 
juxtaposition as well uh, in many different ways. Um, sometimes it was nature and then the things that were going on um, early on in Solomon's experience as a slave um, on Master Ford's plantation. He's being punished and he's hanging from a tree with only his tiptoes hanging, you know, touching the ground. He's there all the and like there's children playing around. Mm-hmm. Um, and life goes on and it, yet here's this man suffering and there's this kind of backdrop of normalcy that is really striking. Yeah, it's and very very disturbing in a way too because I I, I don't want to overstate this it's very much a film about slavery but there are in you know in certain scenes and in certain experiences an equation either thematic or visual with other forms of oppression and I think that scene is one in which it's about slavery, but I think it reaches us on a deeper archetypal level because it makes us realize that we may not necessarily have slaves in America today, but that practice of people can be suffering in plain sight, whether they be the homeless or the mentally ill, and we sort of train ourselves to ignore them and go on with our daily routine. And if you step back and looked at it, you would say, oh, my gosh, that's like, you know, that's happening in plain sight, but but no one's doing anything. And it's, it's a more extreme example because even physical duress, right. we don't often necessarily do that with a homeless person who's in physical duress, but that, that idea of someone suffering in plain sight and we just get so inured to it that we go on with our daily lives or feel so helpless to be, you know, I can't do anything about it, so you know, I'm going to cross the street and look the other way. I mentioned there's a scene in which um, Master Epson's wife, played by Sarah Paulson, tries to get him to send Patsy away because he's sexually abusing her and she's jealous. And he basically says, you know, don't make me choose between me and Patsy because she picks 500 pounds of cotton and, and I can sleep with her and you're just a useless, you know, wife. And it's it's a reminder that well, the, the, there are hierarchies of not just black and white, there are hierarchies of men and women right. and patriarchy. Um, we talk about Master Ford and the debt, you know, and debt as a form of, of bondage and, and working. So there's, uh, you know, the, it, it, it in some ways contemporizes the issue of slavery, you know, a slavery movie, not letting it stay comfortable in the past and saying, this is just a part of the past, although slavery is. You know, gratefully a part of the past, but the foundations of slavery, the hate, the self-justification, the fear, the oppression, still manifest themselves in our world in many days. And I was surprised that the film helped me see that a lot, as opposed to just being a historical drama right the past. Well, and I think part of how it does that is something you've mentioned already, which is it doesn't give us a lot of exposition. It it gives us scenes. It gives us the action. It gives us the, the visual story. Uh, it's not telling us how to feel about these things. It's not telling us or explaining, you know, when he does meet up with, his, is reunited with his family, 
you know, we don't get the long speeches of, oh, I missed you, oh, I did this and this and that. It, it, it just, you get the emotion. Mm-hmm. And it's so much more powerful. And I think it opens it up for a much broader application um, that help us see other things. When we're not being told it means this one thing. Right. Well, it's, it's, it's art. I keep going back to that word. It's archetypal. We, right. We have, most of us have not been slaves or ever experienced slavery, but many of us, black or white, have experienced separation for, from a loved one for an extended period of time. And that reunion scene is something that can resonate from the military to people who have a prodigal experience or, or a storied experience. And, um, or even in these days, you know, people who have to go far away for a job, <laughs> but the rest of them can't afford to bring the whole family. Um, and yes, things of that nature. Uh, yeah. It's, there's all kinds of different ways that we are. We have some of these same, we have experiences that we can relate to what's going on. Right. All right. So it sounds like, um, uh, you know, big thumbs up for me. Sounds like thumbs up for. Oh yeah, this, this was. It's an exceptional film experience. All right. Thank you, Todd. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you've got comments about this episode or suggestions for other films you would like us to discuss at the Thin Place, drop us a line at the Thin Place at filmgeekradio.com. You can also follow me, Ken, at Twitter at twitter.com backslash Ken Morefield, uh, or read my reviews, including my review of 12 Years a Slave at the number one morefilmblog.com. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!